friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. now we're ready to go to God's Word at this time, and so may I request each one to please rise from their seats, and we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. At the count of three, kindly read this together with me aloud. One, two, read. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are in awe of your presence, and we thank you that you do manifest yourself to your people. And so we know, Lord, that you are not an impersonal God, but a God who desires intimacy with his people. And so, Lord, we thank you that we had a taste of heaven, a taste of your glory this morning. And we rejoice in that, O oh God, because, Lord, we worship you for who you are and for what you have done through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We are totally indebted to you, and we just want to tell you, Lord, that we love you from the bottom of our hearts, O oh God. And this morning, O oh God, we pray that you might graciously serve your people with your word. And I pray for myself, O oh God, that you might equip and empower me. Give me your boldness and give me your confidence. Make me your mouthpiece, O oh God. For, Lord, I desire your glory to reside in this place and amongst the hearts of your people. And, Lord, whatever is going to be achieved today, we will carefully give you back the glory the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Riches of Poverty in the Spirit. Now, there are a lot of people who go into the Gospels and they examine the words that Jesus Christ used, the messages that he had shared, the sermons that he had shared and oftentimes, people end up sort of confused because they find that sometimes the Lord makes seemingly contrasting statements which appear to be a paradox. For example, the Lord Jesus Christ said that if we lose our lives, we shall gain it. And then, in a conversation that took place between Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ, Remember, he had this thorn in the flesh, and he was praying to the Lord God that he might be healed. Obviously, after praying for three times, the Lord did not heal him, but the Lord spoke to him. And God said that when you are weak, you are strong. And then Paul himself, in a statement that he made in one of the epistles, said this, that though he has nothing, he possesses all things. So the Christian life is exactly like that. We live by dying, we gain by losing, we reign by surrendering, 
and we are strong when we are weak. And in this particular passage, I'd like to be able to say that we are rich when we are poor in spirit. Now, the word looks at the Beatitudes, and this is what they say. These are the marks of a loser. But really, the truth of the matter is that the Lord is really teaching us a new manner of living, a new approach to living, guaranteed to make us all winners. For the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, For whosoever is born of God overcomes the world. And then in Romans chapter 8, it says, We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. And so the Lord wants our lives to be greatly blessed. In fact, one of the words that you will be seeing here is the word blessed. Now, the world will challenge the statements of the Lord, and they would probably say that the Lord does not really know what He is talking about. Using a little analogy, I believe I can ask you this question, who knows a product more than the manufacturer? It's a rhetorical question, and obviously, there is no one who knows the product more than the manufacturer. And that is why if you buy an appliance, for example, one of the things you need to do is get a manufacturer's manual so that you would know what the equipment that you bought could or could not do. The same thing is true with God. God is the one who created us. And definitely, He knows exactly what is best for us. Amen? God knows exactly what is best for us. One of the things we need to be mindful is that God is not a cosmic killjoy. And most definitely, He is not a cosmic comic. God is not humoring our lives. When He speaks words, He speaks the truth. His pronouncements, my dear brothers and sisters, are not probabilities, but they are certainties. They are not maybes. They are not ifs and buts, but they are certain they will definitely happen. That is why the hope that we have is certain. And my desire is that we get blessed as we launch into this new series because if there's one word that you will see being repeated over and over again, it is the word blessed. Blessed, 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 blessed. And that's what we want to happen. Now, in this particular passage, not only will we be talking about the character that you and I should have, but likewise our portion in God's kingdom. Now, there are two basic parts to this sermon, which I'd like to show to you on the screen right now. And so, first of all, we're going to talk about Christ's audience and authoritative teaching that's found in verses 1 and 2. Now, this is the reason why we had a rather lengthy introduction. I gave you the several approaches to this particular passage. The reason being, a lot of people, when they go into the Scripture, they go straight away and they try to interpret it without considering who is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to. Now, this is very crucial because oftentimes we think that the gospel writers are writing to us primarily or that the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to us primarily. Now, definitely, there is a message for today. But we need to consider the authorial intent. Who was Jesus speaking to? 
We will get into that in a bit later on. And then we will see that the teaching of Jesus Christ is authoritative. Definitely, it's something we need to live by. And then in verse 3, we're going to talk about the content of Christ's teaching. And we have two sub-points under that. First of all, the happiness of those who are poor in spirit. And then the reward of the poor in spirit. So this is how the sermon will flow this morning. So let's go straight away and let's talk about Christ's audience and authoritative teaching. Now, as we get into the study of this particular beatitude, a piece of advice, brothers and sisters. Read this, listen to this with open hearts and with open minds. Do you know that the early church fathers, whenever they read the Bible, they would read the Bible with bent knees. A while ago, we stood up in respect and reverence for the Word of God. But you know what? The way the early church fathers respected and revered the Word of God is several notches. And we find them kneeling down and reading the Scriptures, and they will not stand, they will not sit down until they have finished their Bible meditation. So may I exhort you, brothers and sisters, not to treat the Word of God lightly nor casually. This is the Word of God. And I am simply a mouthpiece. I'm trying to sound off and amplify simply what God is saying in His Word. So let's take a look at verses 1 and 2. Again, Christ's audience and authoritative teaching. First of all, verse 1. It goes, When Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, notice what happened here. Jesus saw the crowds. Now, straight away, Jesus could have spoken to the people right away, but notice he did not do that. Instead, he went up on a mountain. And by the time he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, those who were with him, those who were left behind, were simply the disciples. Now, obviously, there is an intention on the part of Christ to address not the whole crowd, but only those who consider themselves as disciples, professing believers. Now, as I mentioned to you, there are some who are genuine and there are some who are fake, but at least they were professing faith in Christ. And so Jesus wanted to address them. Now, why do you think he did that? Because it is only the believer who can actually live out the Beatitudes. Talk to people in the world about this, and it will not make sense. In fact, they will find it counterintuitive, and they will find it countercultural. It goes against every grain of understanding they have in regard to this life, how to live this life. And that is why you cannot convince them to live in this manner. So once again, it is only for believers. Why? Because only we have received the nature of God. That's why in our previous sermon, I said, it is an absolute necessity that we be born again, that we have a spiritual birth. Because unless we have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling inside of us, we will not welcome 
these truths. We will not embrace them. We will not even appreciate them. That is why it is very necessary that we be born again. Unbelievers simply do not have these natural qualities that we're going to talk about. And I'll give you some examples later on just to shore up my argument. So nobody in this world is born with these natural qualities. Believers, however, are expected to imbibe these characteristics. Now notice here, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after that, what did he do? He sat down. Now to some of us, it might not really be important, but during those times, when a rabbi was teaching, and he was teaching, let's say, while walking or while standing up, all right, it was not considered an official teaching. It was not considered an official or uh, authoritative teaching. So it was considered informal merely. But the moment a rabbi sat down and spoke, that was considered official and authoritative. And I think the narrator relates to us this detail because he wants us to know that what Jesus is about to speak is authoritative and this is official. Of course, when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether he's standing up, he's walking, or sitting down, everything is authoritative and official. But again, the narrator was simply relating the custom of those days. And so the Bible says in verse 2, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying. Once again, we find the phrase, he opened his mouth. I mean, the author or the narrator could have simply said he spoke, but it says here he opened his mouth. And once again, this was actually a very important phrase amongst them because it meant that Jesus was about to speak a message of solemnity as well as a message of importance. So once again, just knowing that, we have to be serious about really paying attention to all the details of this message because obviously you and I want to be blessed. The Beatitudes speak about the blessed life. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you want to be blessed? Raise your hands. All right, we all do want to be blessed. And if you want to be blessed, this is how you live. This is how you do things. And when Jesus opens his mouth, we can expect a wisdom that is simply unsurpassed. And mind you, when the Lord Jesus speaks, it is never impersonal. It is born out of his compassion and affection towards people. He loves us. He cares for us. And that's something that we need to continually remind ourselves. God is never impersonal. And so as he shares these thoughts to us, he is really saying to us, this is how I want you to live because this is how you're going to be blessed. This is how I want you to live because this is the path to joy and this is the path to peace. And so once again, if this is what we want to happen, let us listen to the intimate and heartfelt sharing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's dive into the content of Jesus' teaching in verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor 
in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I have subtitled this, The Happiness of the Poor in Spirit. I will mention to you later on why I have subtitled it as such. But just focus on the phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, or more so, please focus on the word blessed. The word blessed actually speaks about a happy condition. Now, how many of you want to be happy here? Praise the Lord. Amen. We all want to be happy. And I just like to be able to say that the pursuit of God's glory and our happiness is not opposed to each other. God wants us to be happy. For after all, God himself is the author of joy, and he is the author of peace. Many people have believed the lie of the evil one that when you and I taste bits and pieces of the world, when we bite into his temptations, we will be joyful and we will be happy. That is so far from the truth. The devil is only laying a trap, a trap that will eventually and ultimately destroy us. For as the Bible says, the book of Proverbs says, there is a way which seems right unto man, but it is the way of death. And so here, blessed means happy or being favored or content. It is a type of religious joy or happiness which comes as a result of divine favor. So it's like God's eyes, God's tender eyes are upon you and His favor is shining upon your life. Now, what is the opposite word of blessed? The opposite word of blessed is the word woe. And what do you think does woe mean? We find a lot of that, by the way, in the Old Testament. And why do we find that word woe? Because the people in the Old Testament, the Jews, were continually breaking God's covenant. And that is why that word continually appears, woe, woe, woe. And what does it signify? It speaks about pain. It speaks about calamity. That is what woe means. Now, God doesn't want that for us. He doesn't want our lives to become one big calamity. He wants us happy and joyful. By the way, this word introduces one who is to be congratulated. Why? Because his life is, a, is an enviable one. How did I come to Christ? Because I envied my brother's joy and peace. I envied the quietness of his soul. Yet here was I. I was living my life in reckless abandon. And yet I was comparing my emotional state in my moral and spiritual state, and I saw that everything about my brother was brightness, hope, peace, and joy. And all I could see in my life was depression. All I could see in my life was monotony, dullness. And so I began to envy his life. I also recall the first time I went to church and I saw this young man tearing up and his hands raised up. And he was unmindful of the people beside him. And he was just worshiping the Lord. In front of him was a young lady as well whose, whose eyes were focused on heaven and whose hands were raised up. 
And I said, what these people are experiencing is truly genuine. And I wanted that genuineness. I wanted that personal relationship with the Lord. And I'm so thankful to God that I live that life right now. Now, we need to note, however, that the fullness of this happy condition will take place in the second coming of Christ in the millennium. Having said that, however, I'd like you to know that it is already a present reality. So we're not talking about happiness in the future. We're talking about happiness here and now, but it will be even fuller then and there. So if you're enjoying your life right now, well, you will enjoy it even more when we enter into the millennial kingdom when Jesus Christ comes again. I just like to remind you that this is a pronouncement, not a probability. God never talks about probabilities. He always talks about certainties. And that's why we can trust Him and believe Him all the time. Now, who is the one who is blessed? The one who is poor in spirit. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me define it to you first of all negatively, and then allow me to define it positively. So what it is not and what it is. So first of all, the negative definition, what it is not. First of all, this is not talking about material poverty. So the Bible is not telling you to sell all of your possessions and live the life in the slums, become a poor person. This is not talking about material poverty. Some say that it should be translated this way, blessed in spirit are the poor. Blessed in spirit are the poor, meaning to say there's virtue in poverty. But let me just say this, poverty never guarantees spirituality. Now, I'm not in any way saying that poverty does not come to us, nor does God not will it for some of us. I'm just simply saying poverty is not a guarantee of spirituality. There are many people who, in fact, may be poor. <laughs> they might be living in the slums, but they are rich in spirit. And what do I mean by that? They're greedy. They're covetous. They're not content with their lives. They're always thinking, how I wish I have this, and how I wish I have that. They're continually dreaming of having certain things. And guess what? When they acquire those things that they're dreaming of, they're not content. They're not satisfied. They want more and more and more. That is why some people are actually rich in spirit. And it's not a good thing to be covetous because, again, you will never experience contentment in your life. If your heart condition has a jealous attitude, let me just say this, no way you are going to be blessed. God does not bless an envious, jealous, covetous person. So what is it? So positively, this is what it is. It speaks primarily about humility before God. Say humility before God. And by the way, it is intentionally put there by the Lord Jesus Christ right at the very beginning. Why do you think he did that? 
Everything that Jesus does and says is full of wisdom. Now, the reason why the Lord Jesus Christ puts it right at the very beginning is because it is the foundation of every other attitude that you and I will read on after blessed are the poor in spirit. For example, if you're not humble before God, can you really rejoice when people cast insults on you, when people persecute you? When people do bad things against you, can you really do that? That is not really our natural response, right? And that is why it takes humility before God to rejoice. And we can say to God, Lord, this is really painful. People insulting me, people persecuting me, people saying things behind my back. But Lord, my eyes are on you. And I humble myself before you, and I allow this, Lord, to mold and shape my character. It takes humility to be able to do that. Take, for example, the fact that the Bible says you need to be pure in heart. Does that require humility before God? Obviously. Because if you're not humble before God, if you're prideful, then you will do certain things that offend God. It will not matter to you. Your conscience is not bothered. I recall early in my Christian life, I used to join youth camps, and we had this youth camp wherein there were several churches that participated. And there was this one very good preacher whom I actually admired because I really learned a lot from him. But then I was really surprised after a few years, I discovered that he was sexually abusing five young boys. And in my heart, I said, most definitely, this guy is not humble before God. So we can put up a facade. We can make ourselves appear spiritual. We can even preach the Word of God. But how can we be pure in heart unless we are, first of all, humble before Him? Now, to be able to understand this, let's take a look at the Greek word. The Greek word here is the Greek word potokos. The term does not simply mean poor, but begging poor. We're talking about a person like Lazarus, all right? So that's the kind of picture that is given to us. So this is talking about a person reduced to total destitution. Now, again, we're not talking about a literally poor person. That's not what we're talking about here because... As I mentioned to you, negatively, it does not speak about material poverty. And so what does this mean? Well, it's not supposed to be taken literally. This is not a physically poor person, but somebody who is a beggar before God. A beggar before God. Now, this is something that we need to understand. And... To make this clearer, what I did was to come up with an analogy. Try to imagine how a beggar looks like. And I'm sure you've seen some of them in the streets. You've seen some of them knocking on, on your doors. You've seen some of them lying down in the streets or on the overpasses. They're homeless. I'd just like you to try to imagine what a beggar looks like. And try to imagine how that serves as an analogy 
before the presence of the Lord. Well, one of the things we can conclude about beggars is they are completely bankrupt. They would not be lying down on the side streets if that were not the case. Obviously, they're completely bankrupt. And here, once again, this is our situation before the Lord. We realize our spiritual bankruptcy before salvation. And unless you actually understand that you are spiritually bankrupt, you will never approach God and ask God to have mercy on your soul. It is when you realize that you have nothing to offer, that you are zero in the presence of God, that you will turn to Him and ask for help and ask for His salvation. We look into our spiritual pockets and we realize that we have absolutely nothing to offer to God. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, as he expresses his spiritual bankruptcy before God. Romans 7, 18 reads, For I know that nothing good, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I recall one actress, some of you may not know um, this actress anymore because uh, she belonged to an earlier decade. And, but maybe some of you might recognize her. Her name is Lotis Key. She was a very beautiful woman, and she had this uh, affair with one of the top comedians of our country, Dolphy. One thing happened, though, in her life was she started to read the Bible. She came across the Ten Commandments. And upon reading the Ten Commandments, there was something radical that happened in her soul. As she read the Ten Commandments, there was a revelation of the absolute holiness of God. And as she saw the absolute holiness of God, she began to reflect on her own life and what she saw was wretchedness and wickedness. That caused her to ask mercy from God to save her soul. And thankfully, she made Jesus Christ her personal Lord and Savior. That is how a beggar looks like. We realize that even our righteous deeds will never attain to the standards of God because the standard of God is perfection. And therefore, we look at the righteous deeds that we do and we say, nada, it does not produce anything to bring us to salvation. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and all and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Well, it says here, that our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Isn't it interesting that beggars wear what? Filthy garments. You will never see a beggar wearing signature clothes. You will never see somebody knocking on uh, the window of your car wearing a fur coat or a suit. You will never see a beggar wearing signature clothes. What they would wear would be filthy garments. And that's exactly how our righteous deeds look like before the presence of the Lord. 
We may boast in ourselves. We may boast about the things that we do. But most definitely, when you compare that and contrast that with the absolute holiness of God, you can never boast about anything. You see yourself as a beggar. Interestingly, the phrase uh, filthy garments here comes from a Hebrew word that speaks about menstrual cloths. Uh, that would be the sanitary napkins that women use nowadays whenever they have their menstruation. And that's exactly the word that is being used here. And again, the only way you can turn to God is when you see yourself in that way, as a beggar wearing filthy garments. Paul himself had a realization when he was going down that Damascus Road, he was going to persecute those who belonged to the way, those who were Christians, those who were believers. And then he saw this blinding light, and the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to him. And from that time on, he had a realization, a change of heart. And we find a change of heart in Philippians chapter 3. Shall we read, please? It says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law found blameless. So he's, he's going through his CSV right now, and he's telling people, this is my religious biodata. I was among those people who were on the top of the Pharisaic world. I belonged to the religious elite, and I was rising above my peers. So how does that, how does that appear, however, in the presence of God? Well, here's what Paul realized. Take a look at verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. All his religious uh, credentials were nothing but rubbish. They were nothing but garbage in the presence of the Lord. And so how did he now see himself? He saw himself as a beggar. Now did Paul continue on in that kind of an attitude as he had accepted Christ as Lord? Well, near the end of his life, he penned some words which indicates that he continually saw himself as a mendicant and as a beggar before the Lord. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, it says, and this is Paul near the end of his life, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Now think about what Paul had achieved all throughout his lifetime. He had sacrificed so much. He had been beaten up. He had suffered shipwreck. He was chained to the Praetorian Guard. He was flogged. He was stripped. He was put in shackles. 
He planted several churches. He was able to convince a lot of people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There were a lot of Gentile nations and Gentiles that came to Christ as a result of this person's ministry. And yet, near the end of his life, he was not boasting about his credentials. All he saw was that he was an undeserving sinner and that he saw himself, in fact, as the chief, the champion of all sinners. This attitude of being a mendicant and a beggar before God was a continuing attitude. And I would like to be able to say that this is what needs to happen to us. We can never ever afford to be rich in spirit. We can never ever afford to have this self-sufficiency and self-adequacy. We need to continually come before the presence of the Lord begging for His mercy and grace because apart from Him, we are nothing. We are simply branches. He is the vine. Take away the branch from the vine. What do we have? We have nothing. We have absolutely nothing to show. I pray every single day, and I do not say that as a matter of pride, that I pray every single day. I do not recall a time when I did not pray. And why is that so? It is because I understand my desperate and deep need for God in my life. I know that apart from Him, I am nothing. I, I see myself in all my weakness. I see myself in all my vulnerabilities. I see myself in all my inadequacies, inadequacies and insufficiencies. And I turn to God and I say, Lord, unless you move in my life, in my life unless your power embraces me and engulfs me and and inundates me Lord there is absolutely nothing that I can do my worth is only because Lord you have placed your hand on my life take that away Lord and there's nothing of value in me whatsoever and so when you are a beggar before God and here's the second characteristic there is no boastfulness have you ever seen a beggar strutting around like a peacock have you ever seen somebody, a beggar, knocking on your window, posting like a GQ model and asking you for, for money? Have you ever seen that, that kind of attitude? You do not see that with beggars, don't you? There is absolutely no boastfulness among beggars. Again, the Greek word comes from a verb which means to shrink or to cower or to cringe as beggars often did during those days during the time of the lord jesus christ in fact here's what the beggars would do during those times they would cover their faces with one hand and they would stretch the other hand and ask for money why do you think they were covering their faces because they were ashamed really saddened by what has happened to Joshua Harris, a few days after he posted on Instagram that he no longer considers himself as a Christian, he joins a gay parade and then he makes this declaration, I am unashamed. Somebody who is poor in spirit never says that, that I am unashamed. 
You and I know that we do fail God. I mean, we do fail God every single day. Maybe not in our actions, but maybe in our thoughts, in our motives, or maybe in our intentions. Maybe we do not actually murder somebody, but we do get, hate, get hateful with some people. Maybe we do not actually commit adultery in our hearts, or adultery, physical adultery, but maybe we commit adultery in our hearts. Every single day, we, we do fail God. And what happens? You're ashamed of yourself. Sometimes God wants you to do something, maybe share the gospel, and the opportunity presents itself, but we don't have the boldness, we don't have the confidence to reach out and share the gospel, and so we turn our back. We wasted an opportunity, and guess what happens? When the Spirit of God comes upon us, we feel terribly ashamed and embarrassed before God. And we say, God, I'm sorry I failed you. You wanted me to share the gospel. I was given an opportunity. I did not take advantage of that opportunity. Isn't that what happened to Pastor Edmund Chan? When God gave him an opportunity to share the gospel to an Indian lorry driver, and he did not share the gospel. He was already convicted by that time. And then the Indian lorry driver comes again. And God was telling him to share the gospel. He did not. He came out of, of that situation crying and weeping. Even questioning his calling under God as a minister. Because he could not even share the gospel by the prompting of the Holy Spirit to this Indian lorry driver. That is how we feel before God. When, when we have not done the will of God, we cover our faces before God and, and we raise our other hand and we say, God of mercy upon my soul, God help me. God help me in my weakness. That is a mendicant's attitude before the presence of the Lord. We feel ashamed. I recall what happened in the case of Simon Peter. In Luke chapter 5, verse 4, it says, When he had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, and I, I really believe that when Simon Peter spoke this to Jesus Christ, there was a bit of sarcasm in the way he said it. And so I would imagine, and, and the reason why I say that is because of the next statements that he makes. But probably this is the tone, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. <sighs> but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And why do you think he would say that in sarcasm? Because Jesus was a carpenter. He was a builder. And, and Peter was a fisherman. He was a professional. He, he definitely knew what he was doing. And fishermen do their catching at night, never in the daytime. And here was Jesus saying, you need to catch fish right now during the daytime. And he was thinking to himself, this carpenter is trying to tell me that I should catch fish right now. But well, he's a rabbi. I shouldn't argue with him. So yes, all right, I'll do it. Well, guess what happens? It says here in verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. 
And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down. He fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This is how it looks like. When you are in the very presence of God, this is how Isaiah felt when he had the vision of God's holiness, when he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. This is how you and I feel when you are in the very presence of God. We never boast in His presence. We're never arrogant in His presence. We're never self-sufficient in His presence. There is just that feeling of desperate and deep need before God, wherein we cry out to Him, Lord, I need you. I found myself praying on so many occasions, Lord, I needed you yesterday. But I need you more today than I needed you yesterday. Are you that desperate for the presence of God? Are you a beggar or a mendicant before the presence of the Lord? Are you somebody who is poor in his spirit? When you are poor in spirit, there can be no self-preoccupation. You are never occupied with yourself, nor with your intelligence, nor with your abilities, nor with your resources. You never think about those things. You only understand one thing. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Amen? Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. How else do we picture a beggar? A beggar is helpless. Once again, the Greek word speaks of being completely dependent on others for sustenance. The person has absolutely no means of self-support and is dependent on the mercy of others. Moses initially was a rather proud person, I would say. He was educated in the universities of, uh, of Egypt. You will actually be surprised if you get a chance to go to Egypt and go into their museum. You will be surprised that they were way ahead of other nations, in, even in terms of medicine. And that is why education in Egypt at that time was really par excellence. And they were at the top of the world. They used to be the most powerful empire in the world. And right now, of course, they have been reduced to becoming a third world country. But that's where Moses, at the zenith of, at the height of the success of the Egyptian empire, that's when Moses was adopted into the family, becoming a prince, educated in the universities of Egypt. And not only that, he was known to be a good military commander, having achieved a lot of things. So he was a proud person. And he thought that he could, he could deliver his own brethren, the Jews, by doing something radical. And he actually killed one Egyptian. When his deed was made known, he ran away. He went to the desert and spent another around 40 years in the desert. And after 40 years in the desert, he sees the burning bush. 
But he was no longer the self-sufficient, arrogant, boastful, prideful person. He was deeply humble. And when God said, you will deliver my nation Israel, he said, Lord, I'm, I'm not a good speaker. He was shying away from the responsibility that God had given him. At that point in time, he was reduced into mendicancy. He was reduced to being a beggar before God. And he was saying, Lord, I can't do it. And this is how you and I feel if you and I are beggars in the presence of God. The Greek word here also speaks of being crouched in a corner begging. One who is poor in spirit depends solely on God and not on himself. He depends on God's grace and humbles himself before God all the time. And let me just say this, the greatest or one of the greatest manifestations of true humility before God and having poverty of spirit is when you pray. Because when you pray, you're saying to God, Lord, I don't have a handle on life. I don't have a handle on my problems. And Lord, I turn to you. I see you as my healer. I see you as my provider. I see you as my sustenance. I see you as my strength, my joy, my peace. I see you as my refuge. I see you as the rock, Lord. That's what happens. You're fully, totally dependent on God. I like what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. We shall not rely upon our natural birth. We shall not rely upon our belonging to certain families. Nations or nationalities, natural position in life, or any powers we have, education, school, or college, Natural personality or special ability, morality and conduct, and good behavior. You never rely on any of those things. What else characterizes a beggar? Here's another thing. A beggar lives one day at a time. Let me ask you this question. Do you know of a beggar who has a savings account? I just want to know. Do you know of a beggar who has a savings account, maybe an account in BDO or BPI or China Bank or East West Bank? Brother Oji works there. Do you know of anyone who has a savings account? Do you know of anyone who, who goes to the bank and gathers all these coins and then goes to the bank makes a deposit? I think you have never seen anyone like that. And why is that so? Why do you think beggars don't have a savings account? Because they only live one day at a time. They only live one day at a time. Whatever they get for that day, that's what they live on. And if ever they have excess, they're hoping that it will help them the following day. That's why they don't have a savings account. They live one day at a time. And that is what you and I are supposed to be in the presence of God. We live one day at a time. We may not, we may not have the, the strength, nor the resources, nor the abilities for future things. 
But we are dependent on God and we say, God, I don't have what it takes to live out tomorrow in victory, in power, that I may conquer my trials and my temptations. But Lord, I am living one day at a time. I am not going to be worried, O God. I am not going to be anxious, O Lord. I will cast my cares upon you, O God, for you care for me. I lay my life in your hands, O God. I do not know what tomorrow holds, but you hold tomorrow, and that is enough for me. Amen? That is enough for me. That is why one who is a beggar in the presence of the Lord trusts God every morning. Why? Because His mercies are new every morning. Amen? His mercies are new every morning. What else do we see with people who are beggars? They're grateful people. I mean, when you, when you give out, when you shell out something, or when you dole out something to, to people who are truly needy, I mean, they may not even say thank you, but you could see their, their faces lighting up, and you could see the smiles on their face. There's gratefulness. And that is one thing that you and I are supposed to have as believers in Christ. Because if you really think about it, we are all undeserving sinners in the presence of God. We were all hell-bound. And God, in His sovereign grace and mercy, chose us, elected us, brought us into His kingdom of marvelous light, removing us from the darkness of this world, opening our eyes that we might see so that we could, song, we could sing that song meaningfully. I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now am found. A person who is a beggar is always a worshiper. He always worships God for all the goodness that is showered in his life. Also, a beggar is absolutely needy. I'd like you to take a look at Luke chapter 18, please, beginning at verse 9. It says, and, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes towards heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen? That is what God truly appreciates. We must not have this self-sufficiency. I recall this Roman girl who was, who was born blind. But she refused to believe that she was blind. 
And she said, the world is simply in permanent darkness. Isn't that true of some people? They refuse to accept that they are spiritually blind. And they're simply saying, this, this world is in permanent darkness. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, the Lord Jesus chides the church, that the church of Laodicea. It says here in, in Revelation 3, 17, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That was their real condition. And they did not know it. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The Christian is a man and the only man in the world who is truly aware of his own limitations. Let me say it again. The Christian is a man and the only man in the world who is truly aware of his own limitations. Being poor in the spirit means that you understand that your hands are empty. People whose hands are full cannot receive anything from God. Only when your hands are empty can you receive from the loving hands of the Father. Somebody once said this, The door to God's kingdom is low. No one who stands tall can enter it. Let me say it again. The door to God's kingdom is low, and no one who stands tall can enter it. So if I were to summarize what being poor in the Spirit means, let me just put words into this. It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is nothing then that we can produce it is nothing then that we can do in ourselves. It is just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. The world believes in self-confidence, in self-expression, and mastery of life. The Christian believes in being poor in spirit. Amen? The Christian believes in being poor in spirit. Now, as we have studied a bit about being poor in spirit, some of you might be asking, well, Pastor Mel, how do I maintain that poverty of spirit? Well, first of all, turn your eyes off yourself and look to God. We are the selfie generation. Let's start looking towards God more often. Somebody said, look at Him. And the more we look at Him, the more hopeless shall we feel by ourselves and in and of ourselves. And the more we shall become poor in spirit. It is what you feel in the presence of God. If you don't know poverty of spirit, it ultimately means you have never faced Him. Ouch. Let me say it again. If you don't know poverty of spirit... It ultimately means that you have never faced Him. Second, don't pursue personal greatness, praise, compliments, and popularity. Now, does God cause some people to be famous? Yes, He does. 
Does God exalt people and promote them? Yes, He does. But we are never ever to be focused on those things. King David himself was exalted by God, but he wrote a psalm which says, I do not concern my, uh, myself with things too great for me. David knew his place. He was a humble person. He was a contented person. Somebody described poverty of spirit in this way. A man who shrinks at the thought of greatness and honor. And here's the last thing that we need to do. If we want to maintain poverty of spirit, we need to pray. And why should, how should we pray? Like the psalmist, create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew right spirit within me. So, if you and I are poor in spirit, we go to the reward. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word for, I think, is better translated as because. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs seems like a potential right, and it is. When we're going to talk about the millennial kingdom, our, our full blessedness will take place when Christ comes again and we enter the millennium or when you and I are taken to be with God in heaven. Having said that, although it is like a potential right, it is for us here and now. The kingdom is ours now and always. So, here's the thing. We're not going to be happy only when Christ comes. We are already happy right now. Amen? We are the happiest people, in fact, in the world. And if we're happy right now, guess how it's going to be when Christ comes again? We will know the fullness of happiness. Amen? The fullness of joy. So let me end by saying this. Our poverty of spirit is a declaration of our riches in Christ. Amen? We are rich in Christ. Give the Lord a big hand, please. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we bless you, O oh God. Indeed, Lord, this is where we need to begin. We can't begin elsewhere, but we need to begin with being poor in spirit. So, Heavenly Father, we ask, O oh God, that if we are somehow having a sense of adequacy in ourselves, in our abilities, in our intelligence, in our education, in our training, in our family, whatever it is, Lord, that we are confident about. May you just remove these idols. And may we just appear to you as Lazarus, a beggar, deeply in need desperately wanting you and your presence in our lives. For Lord, apart from you, 
we can do nothing. I pray, Lord, that your word will not be wasted. But as you have spoken to your people in solemnity and with great importance, may, this, may these things that we have learned today be a permanent part of how we live our lives. May every single day be a day of basking in the new mercies that you give to us. Thank you, Lord. And we pray that your name will be glorified and exalted forevermore. We thank you, Lord, that we could also give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your name. And Father, we pray, would you be so kind to bless and prosper us? Not because we're greedy, but because we want to be a blessing for the sake of your kingdom and the glory of your name. And whatever has been achieved today, we give you back all glory, praises, and thanks. And all of God's people say, Amen. And amen.